This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Arthur Greer McAllister discusses her new novel, The Magician's Lie. Then, PW's senior bookselling editor, Judith Rosen, celebrates the 10th anniversary of Winter Institute. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. Now, uh, on the fiction side, there's a a clear indication of how much scandal can power uh, a book. Uh, we have at uh, number five on the hardcover fiction list, we have Karen Marie Moaning's Burned, which is the seventh novel in her Fever series. Moaning had uh, had wrapped up the original storyline for the series and r- postulated a new book called Burned that was going to star uh, an adolescent girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and because Moaning writes a lot of paranormal romances, a paranormal romance mm-hmm. series, um, people got very freaked out by the idea of this girl having intimate sexual encounters. Um, and so she had to scrap the whole idea for the book. Uh, like There was a huge amount of pushback and controversy among her fans. So mm-hmm. she scrapped the book um, and wrote a very different one, which is the one that's just been published. And uh, certainly a lot of people wanted to see what was going to happen because, uh, you know, here it is at number five on the list. Um, and when you have number seven, book seven in a series, that's usually pretty fan driven. Right. But it's very interesting to go to a site like Goodreads and see the, the different opinions from the uh, the various readers. Some of them are yeah. very disappointed. A lot of them say, you know, you can really tell this isn't the book she wanted to write. Uh, and it, it's clear that the discussion is going to be continuing there for quite some time. Yeah, it's amazing the the response that fans have, especially on a public forum like that. So why did she decide not to do it? There seemed to be some concern that basically if if she had an older romantic interest for this teenage girl, um, the the implications were simply too unsavory for oh, a lot of the readers. I mean, even in paranormal romance, we often have stories that are, play fast and loose with consent. For example, if you are fated to, to be partnered with someone until the end of time and it's your destiny to be with each other, in some ways that takes away your ability to consent to the relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, right, this magic right. force draws you together and you you don't have a say. Um, so to that extent, readers are pretty comfortable with, with uh, you know, concerns that, you know, might be much more of a problem in the real world. But right. uh, apparently they drew the line uh, at a at a 14-year-old girl. And so she's uh, hopped up much older. Right. Uh, you know, right. Somehow time is going to be made to advance uh, for her story. And uh, for this particular book, the point of view mostly returns to the, the to Mac, who was the heroine of the original mm-hmm. books. Um, and the Danny, who is the younger girl, is, is barely seen. 
Um, so again, some fans are thrilled. It's a return to the earlier works right. and others are like, you wrapped up that story. We want the new story. We just want it without pedophilia. Right. <laughs> so, right. Um, so some interesting questions and concerns there. And it's always interesting also to see how authors respond. Some authors might've said, well, I'm going to write the book I want to write. Right. Um, but Monin clearly really wanted to make her fans happy and not do anything that was going to push them away. And apparently there are still some fans who are like, you know what? I just wanted the book she was going to write. Yeah, I mean, it, you can't please everybody. Sure, yeah. And uh, sort of anticlimactically, a little further down the list at number six is First Frost mm-hmm. by Sarah Addison Allen. This is uh, a small town story, and uh, it's got a little bit of magic woven into an otherwise straightforward contemporary setting. So uh, the, the premise of the story is that uh, there's this town called Bascom, North Carolina, and uh, a family of women who are known for their unusual magical gifts. Um, and a strange man comes to town, threatens to disrupt their peaceful existence, and the family pulls together. Uh, and our review is very complimentary. We said, Alan has written a beautiful, lyrical story, complete with genuine characters whose depth reflects Alan's skill as a writer. Mm. And her fans will be eagerly waiting her next. Oh, wonderful. Well, that's pretty much Great. it for news on the fiction side. Otherwise, just... Same old, same old books. Last week's uh, one, two, three, four are this week's one, two, three, four in a slightly different order. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not, not much exciting going on. For us, our uh, our top debut in nonfiction is Mike Huckabee's God, Guns, Grits, and Gravy. And this comes in at number three. He was the one-time presidential candidate, now mm-hmm. Fox News host. And uh, um, we say that for those who enjoyed his previous books, will enjoy this too. He's amiable. And not surprising in his stances. The title says it all in ways. And this is you know, another book and kind of a return to... Uh, what he calls Bubbaville, the rest of America, as opposed to Bubbleville, New York, L.A., and D.C. And uh, here he talks about it, and he's got some quotes. He goes, I prefer boots over Birkenstocks. Does that make me weird? Uh, in his review. So, I, I mean, the review of the book, we pull these quotes. Um, overall, it was a uh, favorable review. Uh, unexpected, uh, but those who enjoy uh, the writings of Huckabee, and uh, we'll enjoy this. But the big news is, I guess it's the American Sniper. And we have a uh, uh, piece uh, that just came out uh, uh, on Thursday's issue, uh, PW Daily, written by Jim Milliot. Uh, and we say that uh, the American Sniper rules bestseller lists. So right now, this, this book came out uh, a while ago. It's number one on trade paperback, number one in mass market, as well as an older mass market version, kind of a vintage version. So it's kind of ruling uh, all those uh, lists right now. This book is is set to break the record, according to Jim, uh, set by Passion of Christ in 2004 as the highest grossing R-rated movie ever released. So it's getting a lot of attention, but what we're seeing are people returning to the books to pick it up and read it for themselves. Uh, of course, the book is written by Chris Kyle, who's, uh, this is an autobiography, uh, talking about his uh, time as a sniper, mm-hmm. uh, and this is a and this is a movie made by Clint Eastwood. So uh, a lot of people are coming to see it, and apparently a lot of people are turning to the book to read it too, in all its various versions. And that is basically all we have on the nonfiction list. It'll be interesting to see whether things continue uh, picking up for American Sniper. Like how how long that goes on? Yeah, because. Uh, it, I always wonder, you know, how long is the movie going to be in theaters and how does that affect the book? You know, to what extent does it continue 
trickling down as more and more people see the film. Right, exactly. And we'll see how it does the Academy Awards as well, because that could just boost it up as well. Definitely. Or at least keep it on the list. It's hard to go up from number one. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. (laughs) And I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Greer McAllister takes us across the country with Amazing Arden. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel Jose Older, author of Half Resurrection Blues, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Greer McAllister on the line. Her new book is The Magician's Lie. Hi, Greer. I'm so glad you could join us. Glad to be here. Thank you. So tell us about this novel. It's a historical novel. When's it set? It's set in 1905, and there's some uh, parts of the story that go back a little earlier than that, but the present-day action is set in 1905. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what's the, the heart of the story? Can you give us a bit of a synopsis? Sure. Um, it, as we said, set in 1905, and it's about a famous female magician who becomes famous for cutting men in half as part of her act and then falls under suspicion for a murder when a man's dead body is found under the stage after one of her performances. Wow. So um, was, was this based on a real person? You don't hear about female stage magicians very much. No, you really don't. And that was something I had discovered as part of my research. The first part um, of the inspiration was just that I had seen so much about male magicians. And one of the you know most common illusions that you hear about uh, is a male magician cutting a female assistant in half. And I had never heard anything about a female magician cutting a man in half. So I decided to sort of dig around and go to the historical record. Uh, and first to see if it was just me, and it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people that I talked to had also not ever heard anything about a female magician cutting a man in half. So when I went to the historical record, it turned out that the first female magician who really became famous for doing an illusion like that wasn't until the 1980s. So uh, there are a lot fewer female magicians than male magicians. It's just one of those fields that's dominated um, by men. But there were definitely female magicians going back um, you know, hundreds of years, and so I lit upon uh, one named Adelaide Herman, who became was her husband's assistant initially, and then when he died, she took over his act and did a very famous trick called the bullet catch in 1897. So that was an event that I kind of wanted to anchor the book on, and that's why it's uh, set in the period that it's set. And so the main character is uh, a woman you've called the amazing, known as the Amazing Arden, and this woman is based on this uh, th- this this woman who you researched. And tell us a little bit about her. She, uh, the Amazing Arden, um, actually was Adelaide Herman shows up in the book um, mm-hmm. as her own character, but it kind of didn't make sense for me to take. Adelaide Herman's life and change it to fit the story that I wanted to tell. So Adelaide does appear, but it's really the amazing Arden story, and she's uh, the magician of the title who uh, becomes famous for cutting a man in half and and infamous, obviously, really, um, for the same reason. So she is telling the story to a police officer who suspects her of this murder. She's trying to convince him to let her go, and in the course she tells both the police officer and, of course, the reader, uh, large parts of her life story. So she starts out uh, sort of in in the early days and tells the story of how she uh, got into magic and uh, why she couldn't possibly be guilty of this murder that that she's being accused of. So the book is called The Magician's Lie, which immediately makes me suspect your narrator, especially because she's telling the story under such duress. Uh, Is the reader intended to just 
believe everything she says, or are we always looking for hidden meetings and motives? Yeah, hidden meetings and motives, uh, absolutely. So uh, we definitely want you to be suspicious of her uh, from the beginning. And, you know, she's she's telling the story for a very specific purpose. Uh, and so, especially with the title being a lie, you know, your immediate question is, okay, well, what is the lie? And then you have other questions. Is there only one? Um, because that's what the title leads you to to believe. Um, but I definitely wanted the reader to be suspicious as you're reading along and to wonder whether or not she did it, whether or not she's telling the truth as the story unfolds. And I can promise that by the end, you will know the answer to that. <laughs> so tell us about Adelaide Herman. Adelaide Herman, yes, yeah, she took over her husband's act um, and was doing amazing things in the 1880s and 1890s. And this, this is the real part, not the story part. But she was traveling to Russia to perform in front of uh, the royal court there. She was getting shot out of a cannon in South America and doing just these amazing things. Um, and then when her husband died suddenly and left the company in quite a bit of debt um, and Adelaide with no uh, other skills besides magic, she decided she had to deliver on the bookings that he had already made. And one of the first was this bullet catch uh, booking on the Metropolitan Opera House stage in New York City in January 1897. So the bullet catch is basically the most fatal possible trick because it's performed by having people shoot real guns directly at the magician's face and not something I would recommend for amateurs. And it turns out a lot of professionals um, also should not uh, should not be doing it because obviously so many things can go wrong. But Adelaide felt that she had no choice um, because that was the only way that she would be able to make a living is to establish herself as uh, as a, a real magician in her own right. And it worked. She performed the illusion and took over her husband's company, became known as the Queen of Magic, and had a, a very long and storied career as a, a female magician in that time. Now, uh, Arden has a, a slightly different relationship with her husband. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, it's definitely one thing that's different about Arden that I wanted to use that, that wasn't in the historical record is Arden really makes a name for herself, herself. You know, she's mm -hmm. not associated with a male figure. She's associated with Adelaide and eventually takes over Adelaide's company. Um, but most women in magic at this time were there, you know, as their husband's assistants uh, and drawn in that way. But I really wanted uh, Arden to not have her husband uh, lead, lead the way into magic for her. So your book begins, or at least the main action begins, in Waterloo, Iowa, and then moves for, about from Tennessee to Philadelphia, New York. Why these places, and, and why with this traveling troupe? Well, um, I can tell you Waterloo, Iowa, because I was born in uh, northeastern <laughs> Iowa and grew up there, uh, and I just felt like it was a great setting uh, for this particular part of the action. She's in um, what would have been the largest city in the area in northeastern Iowa, Waterloo, performing this show. She's fleeing the scene after this murder and is caught by uh, a small-town policeman, uh, Virgil Holt, who is the only police officer in Janesville. Mm -hmm. And so he has her and in his control. He has her at his police station, handcuffed to a chair, and that's it. You know, it's, it's just sort of this tiny little island uh, in the world uh, during the night. It's dark, uh, and it's just the two of them. So it's almost a claustrophobic feeling of, of she's in that part of the story. Right. And then as she tells him her life story, the action opens up and has the epic sweep, and you see all these other places that you mentioned, Philadelphia, Tennessee, New York City, 
Um, part of the action takes place at the Biltmore Estate in Western North Carolina. So there are various reasons that different uh, parts of the story uh, were set in these uh, different places. But um, I really wanted to have the, the present action in sort of a, a claustrophobic, dark place and then show you so many other things. Because uh, she does end up traveling with um, this traveling Bosel troupe of magicians and so you get to sort of tour around the eastern United States at the time uh, and see what she sees. So what kind of research did you do for the book? Because uh, you, know, you can look at maps all you want, but it, it can be very difficult to really bring historical places to life. Absolutely. Um, and that was something I really struggled with. I had never written historical fiction before. But as a reader, what I really want is to be swept away and to be taken to the place and time that the author wants the story to go. And so as an author, that was the effect that I was striving for. So I really did a lot of digging into the details. And it honestly derailed the actual writing of the book for quite a while because I wanted to, you know, if a character put on a hat, I wanted to know what kind of hat would it have been. You know, were, was she wearing gloves? Did sequins exist? Uh, how much did it cost to ride the streetcar? Just countless, countless little details. Um, and finally, about halfway through writing the book, I really found the balance of, okay, the book needs to get written, and then we can fill in some more of these details along the way. But hopefully in the finished product, you have those scenes and those details that really make you feel like you're in these places. You're on the train. You're in New York City. You're, you know, on the stage with her and, and smell the fake blood and, and see what she sees. So hopefully the selection of detail has, has managed to do it that over time. So as, as I was thinking about what questions to ask you, it occurred to me that fiction writers are often called magicians, and, and you talk about being swept away uh, and, and essentially you know, readers buying into the illusions uh, created by the author. So do, do you feel that your art is similar to the magician's art? Did you feel a kinship with these magicians you were researching? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, I feel like uh, fiction and stage magic are very similar in that way because you're going into it knowing that you're being lied to, right? You have the magician who's on stage and you go to a magic show to be fooled. That's the explicit purpose. Um, and you pick up a novel knowing that it's a novel, knowing that these people didn't exist, that the story didn't happen. And obviously with historical fiction, you might have some of it that's real, that's pulled from the historical record. But as as the author, I want you to get so absorbed in this story that you almost forget that it's all made up. I want you to care about Arden. I want you to wonder whether she did it. Uh, I want you to fear for her safety. And I do think that it's it's extremely similar, that illusionists uh, and novelists have quite a bit in common. So she's handcuffed uh, and uh, being interrogated by Virgil, as you mentioned. Who is this Virgil? And... Um, who is he in the greater context within the book? Good question. Um, Virgil is a small-town policeman, the only policeman in Janesville, Iowa, and he sort of had this uh, very local life, was born in this town, grew up there, um, and is uh, is living out his life in this place. So he's got a, a huge contrast from Arden in that way, because she's lived all over the place and is living sort of a big life. But... Uh, when the story starts out, it seems like he has all the power, right? He's physically restrained her. Mm -hmm. um, he has authority in a place where she doesn't have authority. And uh, it might seem like there's absolutely no way that she can, uh, she can win in this story overall. And again, I will let people read the book to find out whether that's the case. Um, but 
some uh, some of his secrets come out that show you that he's got some vulnerabilities too. So um, he's, uh, like I said, living sort of the small life, and, and his future turns out to uh, hang in the balance over the course of this night just as much as Arden's does. Mm. Um, he knows that he could uh, become known as the person who caught her, so she has rather a, a serious uphill climb to convince him to let her go because he has uh, so much to gain from being the one to uh, to capture this murderer. Hmm. Now, I'm just picturing the two of them sitting there and um, somehow immediately set it on a stage in my mind. You've you've written a lot of plays. Do you see this as, as in some ways a, a, a setting for two actors you know, sitting and having a conversation? Absolutely, yes. I, I thought of those scenes as play scenes uh, because it's just those two people and sort of a bare stage and the dialogue. Um, and that's part of what I feel is, is really great about having written plays and poems and short stories and then novels, that each of those forms teaches you something different. Uh, and what playwriting teaches you is definitely dialogue. Uh, so that's pretty much the, the only tool that you have. Once, you, once you've set the stage and decided who's going to be on it, um, all you have is people's words to convey the story and to absorb the reader or the audience. Um, so I definitely felt of those sections as plays. And then in the sections between where Arden's telling her story, that's more of a cinematic sweep. That's something you could never do on a stage. Mm. So I appreciate having both of those forms uh, to, to work with in this novel. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Greer McAllister, author of The Magician's Lie. She's just mentioned writing plays and poetry and um, many, many different kinds of fiction in preparation in some ways for this novel uh, and how that's that's uh, influenced the creation of this debut. So tell us a little bit more about that, about your other writing lives. Sure. Um, this is the first published novel, so it's different in that way. Um, but there were other novels that I wrote that, that helped sort of strengthen my hand in plotting and help me in developing characters. Um, but as I said, playwriting is really great for sharpening your skill at dialogue. Uh, when you hear your words spoken, it's very different than what, seeing what they look like on the page. And poetry, I feel like it helps you clarify images. It helps you really get down to just that concise um, set of words that can draw a picture in the reader's mind. And it helps you think about words in isolation, you know, writing a lovely sentence. Um, it's great in poetry when you don't have a lot of other concerns on top of it. Um, in a novel, obviously, you can write a beautiful sentence, but you may end up having to delete it because it doesn't fit with the story that you're trying to tell. So I did really appreciate having the different skills to bring to the novel um, and learning along the way. 
So uh, you had mentioned you're, you're also a poet, short story writer, and you, your work has been included in such publications as the Missouri Review and your playwright. Uh, all of this, you said, has, has kind of fueled this novel, uh, or at least has helped you write this novel. Uh, the, the word choices of a poet, I'm sure the, the, uh, the, the, the storytelling ability of a short storyteller, but also the, the narrative uh, and dialogue of a playwright. What what made you decide to write a novel, and um, how easy is it for you to move within these various writing genres? Well, it's not that easy, because I feel like once I've started writing the novel, that's really been my focus. Right. Uh, and I think it's harder than the other forms, but in a way more rewarding, just because so much does go into it, and particularly this one, which I spent so long on. Um, I feel like the payoff at the end is just thank goodness, commensurate to the work mm-hmm. that went into it. Right. Uh, so novels, I think, are, are so hard because you do have to, bal- you have to balance all of the things that I mentioned coming from the different forms. And you have to write a, you know, a ripping good yarn that people are going to read all the way through. Um, so it's, it's different. Having to build the momentum and keep the momentum going, I think, is, is unique to the form, or at least it's harder in, the, in that form where you're looking at carrying that momentum over 320 pages instead of over 10 pages or maybe just, you know, 16 lines. And um, you had mentioned writing other novels before this one. Um, I feel like a thing that writers are sometimes reluctant to talk about or that uh, people don't ask about very much is um, the the unsuccessful novels, the ones that don't make it to print uh, or that have to be set aside in favor of later efforts. Uh, is is that what happened for you with, with those novels? Were they practice runs in some ways or do you think you'll come back to them later? I think at this point they feel like practice runs. I think each of them helped me learn something that um, paid off in this novel, but I think that probably there were lots of reasons that they were unsuccessful novels instead of successful novels. And, you know, we used to call them trunk novels, that they would be in a trunk, and now they're sort of hard drive novels that they just hang out on your hard drive uh, (laughs) for eternity instead of appearing in print somewhere. Um, at this point, I don't feel like I'll go back to them because it's interesting. They're all set. Uh, they're all contemporary novels. And now having written uh, historical, I kind of feel like this is the place where I should be. Certainly, um, the ideas that are coming to me now are ideas that are set in the past and that the story is most resonant if it's set at a place in time that is not the present, which is how I felt about this one. You could tell a story about a modern-day female magician cutting a man in half. She could have a Vegas show. She could have a TV special. It's not unheard of. But I felt like in order for the story to have the resonance that I wanted it to have, having it sort of in more of a golden age of magic where people would go out and see a magic show on a Thursday evening as part of a vaudeville bill, um, (laughs) she could have more of an impact. And so it really, I think, landed in the right place and time. And then the other stories that I'm looking at writing into novels, um, they also need a place and time that's not to hear it now. But you mentioned that that's really a, a long process. There's so much research to do before you get into the writing. Uh, how, do you, how do you sustain that pace? How do you keep yourself going through that long process? Well, I think it's it's interesting, and the the research sort of sustains itself. I feel like you try, you, you know, you you go looking for one thing, and then it pulls you in another direction, and you're discovering and learning and and putting things together. Um, I think now the problem for me is more okay. When do I set aside? When do I stop researching and uh, and start writing? But uh, it's all it's all sort of interwoven, um, and 
sometimes you can figure out, okay, well, I can start writing this section while I'm still research, researching this other section. Um, and they're, they're different skills and they use different parts of the brain. So sometimes it's a relief to say, well, I'm not going to write uh, new language right now, but I'm going to go, you know, spend some time reading another book or watching a documentary or something to learn about this time that I need to try to inhabit. And what's it like to have full control creatively uh, as you do in a novel, but uh, to give it up to others in a play? Ah, it's interesting. I, um, that's a great question because I did um, have an incident with one of my plays that was performed a couple of times uh, at American University, and I went to see it the first night uh, and was just, you know, trembling and overwhelmed by the fact that, that somebody was performing one of my plays on stage, and I thought it was the most amazing thing. And the second night I watched it uh, and enjoyed it, but the very last line, the actress on stage changed the line. Uh, she added to it and made it mean something completely different from what I had intended. And so that's exactly what you're saying. I mean, lack of creative control. Um, the directors are making decisions. The actors are making decisions. Um, and so it's your work, but it's not really uh, your work completely. Um, a novel is different in that you can say yes or no. You know, nobody's going to change a line without you knowing about it. Um, but it is also somewhat collaborative in that I have a wonderful agent who um, helped me sort of clarify some things editorially. Uh, my editor was wonderful also in terms of uh, helping me see some ways that the novel could be improved. And so it's collaborative in that sense. But you're right, you do sort of, it is comforting to have that creative control and to say, well, nobody's going to be able to... Uh, make me do something I don't want to do uh, in regards to this book. So I get, the, I get the benefits of collaboration without some of the drawbacks, I think. But I imagine, uh, just thinking in terms of comparing the two, like with a play, you, you see it unfold live in front of you, and, and it is kind of out of your hands, whereas a reader reading it is going to make his or her own assumptions and decisions, and you won't know what they are, but here you can see it live on stage. Yeah, it's, uh, there are definitely uh, similarities and differences. Um, and I'm one of those authors who believes, you know, whatever the reader sees in the book is in the book. Um, so I, you know, I have my concept of, of what the main story is and what the main issues are and how I feel about the characters. And every reader is going to bring their own uh, perspective, right? They're going to feel differently about right. the characters. They might interpret some things in the plot differently. Um, and so once it's out in the world, I think it's out in the world. Uh, and I'm very glad to have readers. Um, and not, uh, I, you know, I could prevent anyone from thinking of it differently by never <laughs> letting anyone read it, but that's not what I'm interested in. I recently was involved in a conversation about an author's first book where some readers were speculating about his motivations, and it occurred to me it would probably be very awkward if he were to find that conversation online, and um, and and it might even shift the way that he writes his future books. Do you, do you read your reviews? Do you read discussions of your work? Um, to a degree. Um, I know better, but don't uh, always <laughs> listen to myself as far as, you know, going on to Goodreads and reading those reviews. Uh, and at this point, you know, you have Twitter and people, you know, people will write a negative review, a blogger or just a, a person with a website will write a negative review and tag you mm -hmm. and say, oh, this is a terrible review, the Lady Greer. Um, and <laughs> I have made the decision not to respond to that. Um, I know authors who do, and I feel like they almost always regret it. Um, yeah. So I see these conversations, and I do not participate in these conversations. Um, and it certainly makes me cautious about how I talk about books online. Um, 
because authors are real people too. And, you know, you may like a book, you may not like a book, you may have questions about a book. Um, but I think that, uh, online for me anyway, as a, as an author is probably not the place to, uh, to get too deeply into the things that I don't like. I try to stay more positive. So, um, these different fields that you're in must all be sort of individually difficult to break into. Um, how, how did you end up getting started with the writing life in, in any particular? Um, I feel like I'm one of those writers who just always wanted to be a writer. Um, so I was writing stories in fourth grade. Um, a Wrinkle in Time was a super influential mm-hmm. book for me and got me sort of started thinking about being, you know, being a reader and being a writer both. Um, but then I was also very influenced by the Sweet Dreams series of teen romances. So the first quote-unquote novel that I thought I was writing uh, was in sixth grade and was pretty much exactly a copy of things that happened <laughs> in, uh, in the book P.S. I Love You, which is the very first in the Sweet Dreams series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just, it's just sort of always been there. Um, I, did, I got more serious about it in college and uh, got my MFA from American University, but none of these fields are sustaining for me at this point. I also work professionally uh, as a different kind of writer, uh, more of a business writer, so I think that um, that also sort of helps my skills in, in a different way. But I have friends who teach creative writing and say, you know, it's really hard to be thinking creatively about someone else's work and your own work at the same time. Um, so that was, I had thought about going into teaching and, and sampled it a little bit and decided that wasn't the trajectory that I wanted. So um, it is tough. It's so tough to break into any of these worlds. Um, and so everybody has to sort of make their own decision about do you take the leap and hope that you'll be able to sustain, sustain yourself financially uh, by working creatively, or do you sort of try to balance and figure out, okay, this part of my life will be uh, the creative work and this part of my life will be um, something that pays the bills. So everybody's always doing that calculus, I think, all the way along. Um, the business writing thing is interesting. I didn't know about that. Uh, is, is that basically the bills paying for you? Yes, exactly. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I know a lot of writers who've done similar things, but um, it can also. When I was doing uh, journalism uh, more than editing, I do now. Uh, it it was just so useful for the discipline. For okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make a thousand words happen. Yes, absolutely. Um, and for me, the business writing and then also some angle of it is marketing, which it's hard as an artist to think of your work as something that needs to be marketed, but it's just the reality of publishing today is that you need to be able to pitch your book to people and you need to be heard in the sea of books, you know, dozens and hundreds and thousands being published all the time. You need to be able to say to someone, this is why you should read my book and not the other 16 books that you could have bought in the bookstore. Um, and I think having to have my brain in that mode uh, for, you know, my day job is also helpful for um, this, uh, this creative passion that I have. So do you have any advice for aspiring authors or playwrights? I mean, are those fields very different to break into? Um, definitely. And I have to say as a playwright um, that I, you know, haven't had a Broadway play or a New York City play. And so I, I haven't done what people would consider uh, enough, I think, to be successful in that area. Um, and obviously with the novel, I've been able to, to break out more and hopefully there will be more novels to come in that area. But I think my advice for, for any writer in any field is just 
don't let yourself be isolated. You know, there's a time in the creative process to just sort of hunker down with your vision and write a book. Uh, but there are also lots of times in the creative process where you should let someone else read it or you should talk to somebody else about uh, their career or you should collaborate with somebody else in some way. Uh, because writing can be very isolating and uh, it doesn't have to be. And especially with social media these days, you can connect with other authors without leaving the comfort of your own home. So I think that's been a great development um, for a lot of writers uh, that you can connect and learn and grow um, either in person with people or through uh, through classes or online. So um, can you tell us about something that you've gotten out of that online community, friends you've made or advice you heard? Um, definitely. I mean, there have been opportunities where um, I've needed somebody else to appear with me. You know, I've been invited on to, onto a panel or something, and I can reach out to my group of authors and see who else wants to appear on a panel with me. Um, other people have recommended me for conferences. Uh, it's just sort of a, a connections that you discover other people who write things that are similar to what you write or, or dissimilar, but you like them. And it's... Um, it's helpful to just sort of be on each other's side, to sort of be um, connected to each other and then uh, see the opportunities that come from that. Uh, and you had mentioned that you have a few ideas kicking around for your next book. Have you picked one yet or are you waiting to see how they settle up? I'm working on one, but it's uh, it's taking a while. Uh, I had a baby back in August. Oh, so congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, so she's derailed me as far as the writing goes, but she's great for research because I'm up in the middle of the night all the time. Um, <laughs> and so I can sit and you know read a book or watch a, a documentary like I was talking about before. And so that's sort of been the driving process of the research on the next book. Um, is that, you know I know authors who can write novels on their iPhones, on their commute, on the subway, and it mm. blows me away because okay. I am not one of those people. Um, so I can't be typing one-handed in the middle of the night, but I can research. Um, and that's been good for filling my brain. And just now on book tour, I'm actually getting a chance to sit down with both hands free on planes and, and, and trains and whatnot and get some of the, the actual writing done. So that book is definitely in the works. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing it. We've been talking with Greer McAllister, and you can find her book, The Magician's Lie, in stores right now. Greer, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW's senior bookselling editor, Judith Rosen, takes us on a field trip to Winter Institute. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Joanne Bourne. I'm the author of Rogue Spy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW's senior bookselling editor, Judith Rosen, is here to tell us all about the upcoming Winter Institute. Hello, Judith. Hi, Mark. So, I, I want to ask first, what is Winter Institute? Winter Institute is celebrating its 10th anniversary, and it's an educational conference sponsored by the American Booksellers Association. It's kind of the winter counterpoint to um, Book Expo, which mm-hmm. happens every spring. And uh, what distinguishes it from Book Expo is uh, it's limited to 500 booksellers. And there's none of the hoopla that you see at Book Expo. There's no costumed characters. Um, 
uh, no giant pets or something wandering around the hallways. The focus is on education, but it's also on authors. So it's a great opportunity for booksellers to meet a lot of authors. Um, there's also little swag. Um, booksellers get galleys for the big books of the season, and they are tucked into a galley room. And it's pretty exciting. The galley room's only open for a few hours during the conference, and it's pretty exciting when it is open. People pack the place and just hunt for their favorite books that they want to read for the season. So it's pretty exciting. So it's kind of like uh, Walmart on Black Friday. The galley room is, for sure. <laughs> um, but with uh, a lot more literary stuff than maybe Walmart might be uh, stocking. Uh, and throughout the conference, there's just a collegial, um, collegial sense. Uh, people have a chance to meet with publishers. Some of the publishers actually sit in on the educational sessions. And it's a real opportunity to kind of take stock where you are. Christmas season has just passed. Everybody can breathe a sigh and say, okay, what do we need to focus on for the year ahead? And so this takes place February 8th through 11th this year, and it's going to be, uh, as far as you, know, you were saying, getting away from Christmas, it's kind of getting away from the cold of the Northeast in ways. It's in Asheville, North Carolina. Yes. For those of us who dug out this past week um, from over two feet of snow, it will be a welcome relief, a very welcome relief. Um, and one of the really cool things that happened at Winter Institute at the very first one, which was also in another warm location, Long Beach, California, um, it's a place where booksellers uh, meet authors, but sometimes in those connections, they can create a bestseller. So um, uh, Algonquin had a book uh, about elephants. Uh, Sarah Gruen's book, mm -hmm. which went on to become a movie, and that book really got its start at Winter Institute. Um, she even wrote an email afterwards crediting that for um, helping make Water for Elephants such a huge book. I think it's now sold about five million copies. Mm. Um, and another book that uh, that uh, the American Booksellers Association takes credit for making at Winter Institute is a book you might recall from this past winter. You might have even bought it for somebody you uh, care about. Um, Anthony Doerr's book, All the Light We Cannot See, mm -hmm. got its launch with independent booksellers at Winter Institute last year. Yeah, and that was a, a surprise. That's one of those great surprise bestsellers. I'm reading it right now. Uh, that that had come out uh, with with it received you know nice literary you know, you know criticism, uh, uh, but just jumped up. I mean, and then all of a sudden they're printing nine hundred thousand copies. Exactly, but um, the publisher Simon and Schuster. Uh, introduced booksellers to Anthony Doerr at Winter Institute. Mm -hmm. They had a chance to meet and talk with him. They also took him around to meet booksellers around the country. And that, But that groundswell really began at Winter Institute last year, which was held in Seattle, Washington. So why is uh, the 10th anniversary such a big deal? I think it's a big deal because... 
it shows it shows that the importance of bookselling um, it grew out of this idea originally that booksellers wanted education and it shows how much education has paid off at this year's winter institute there will be a large number of people interested in opening bookstores. We see bookstores hmm. not only coming back stronger, but we see people wanting to open bookstores for the first time. So it's a very exciting moment, and that's part of why the 10th anniversary is so exciting, to be part of that moment. Um, booksellers who've been in the business for a long time act as mentors for some of the newer booksellers. Um, and it's also an opportunity to meet some of the great smaller presses. It's not all about Simon & Schuster um, with a chance to meet a small press like Lookout Books, which is um, part of University of North Carolina, which had a little success with its first book called Binocular Vision. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, John Blair Publishers, which has been around for a number of years, but is probably still known mostly in the South for its books. So it's a great opportunity to meet presses uh, for people that they might not have known, and it contributes to the education of booksellers and helps foster new bookstores coming up. So do you get specialty booksellers? Um, when I think of my favorite bookshops, they're, they're really specializing in particular genres. Uh, do you get people with uh, stores that mostly sell used books? You know, how, how much of a variety is there in the, the booksellers who show up? Many of the booksellers sell new books, although there are some used booksellers that do come. Um, there's one bookseller named Shane Gutwals who is in his third year of trying to launch franchise used bookstores, and he plans to open uh, five to ten of them this coming year. Hmm. He started in Georgia. He'll be at Winter Institute. He's been at Winter Institute before. So I think um, used bookstores also, or used booksellers also find a lot of value in um, it's in what's going on there, you won't find too many sessions on ebooks. I think the fact that ebooks have kind of settled down, and print is back in a big way, uh, makes it you know you can watch those shifts in the bookselling community by looking at what's going on. There are a lot of speakers addressing the business of bookselling, but they're addressing it from kind of the creative side. Um, Stephen Johnson, who has a PBS uh, show called How We Got to Now, will be talking about how we got to now, but how it relates to book selling um, and all the things that came about because of the invention of the printing press, which brought with it lenses for glasses, which people needed. With, but with that, more new scientific inventions. So it's kind of an interesting place. There are um, a lot. There are genre writers who are part of author receptions uh, uh, that are that take place in the evening, and so I mean I think some of the many of the genres are well represented at the institute. And I'm I'm just thinking back to ten years ago and what the state of the industry was. It's changed so much. Uh, but I mean, ebooks were sort of just becoming a really big thing 
I think, uh, back then. And was Winter Institute kind of started in response to that, to concerns that everyone would go all digital and bookstores would die? I think it started in response to the sense that there is so much great education at Book Expo, Mm -hmm. and yet it's often hard for some booksellers to travel um, in at that time of the year when Book Expo is held. It also can be expensive for them to come to New York, where um, Book Expo has been for a while. And so the idea was that they would take that education and bring it to booksellers in other parts of the country, which is why the first one was on the West Coast. In fact, the first few were on the West Coast. And in 2006, when the first one took place, um, bookstores were still in were much more worried about chain chain bookstores as competition mm. than they were about ebooks. Although Amazon um, and online retail was starting to gain a foothold, not as big a foothold as it has now, but um, it was starting to gain a foothold. But I think it was that sense of helping booksellers just do a better job with being a business. So many of us just love reading books and many people get into book selling that way. But without running a good business, you're not going to have a successful store. And the, and the ABA, um, which sponsors Winter Institute and is a sponsor of Book Expo, really wants strong bookstores across the country of all varieties. And um, so that's really the origin. Then in 2008, when the economic crisis came about, Winter Institute offered a lot of opportunities for booksellers concerned about how to maintain their business in the face of such a um, monetary crunch. And now that we're back at a much better space, gas costs, I don't know, in my community, it's $2.11. It's it's just a better moment. The economic crisis seems to have passed. People are getting back to work, and it seems like they're coming back into bookstores and spending their money. So who will the headlining authors be at this this Winter Institute? You know, if you were to ask the publishers, I think every author they're bringing is one of the top on their list. Mm. There's some really great, great authors coming. On the kids' side, I know that um, Penguin Razorbill is very excited about a book called An Ember in the Ashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a first printing of 250,000 copies. It comes out in April. Wow. wow. Uh, <laughs> has a lovely opening line or set of lines. My big brother reaches home in the dark house before dawn when even ghosts take their rest. He smells of steel and coal and forge. He smells of the enemy. Wow. Um, that's pretty intense. <laughs> yes. Wow. And that's just the beginning. Um, <laughs> there are uh, Algonquin, uh, who I mentioned earlier, has a big children's book called The Walls Around Us by Nova Rensuma. And that book happens to be the number one indie pick for the spring children's list. Um it has a much more modest first printing of 30,000 copies, um, and it comes out in March. Uh, and I think it's uh, also for YA, ages 14 and up. 
and I think it's going to be another very big YA book. Um, on the adult side, there are several books. There's one big book that made a huge splash earlier in the year when it was first bought, um, or I guess it would be last year now, uh, when it was first bought by Alfred uh, Knopf um, for $2 million. It's a debut novel by Garth Risk Halberg. It's coming out in mm-hmm. October. So not every book not every book or author who will be there is a has a spring title. Some of them go all the way into the fall. Oh wow. Um and this book is called City on Fire. It's a 900-page manuscript. Uh they're printing 200,000 copies. Wow. That's um, a big gamble. You'll be hearing more about him because he will be one of his book will be one of the buzz books at BEA as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also exciting to see some of our own from the bookselling community at Winter Institute. So Jamie Corngay, who has a bookstore called Turnrow Book Company mm-hmm. um, and lives in the South, has a book called Soil, which is his first novel. And his publisher is very excited about it since it's got a lot of Southern Gothic um, notes to it, and um, he's part of a program that the ABA has for Indies Introduced Debut Authors. Um, another big writer is Reef Larson. I am Radar. You might remember he had an earlier book called The Young and Prodigious T.S. Spivet. A movie was made of that book that came out in Europe, and I believe the movie should be appearing in the U.S. later this year. Mm. That sounds like a pretty exciting lineup. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it goes on and on. Eric Larson, Dead Wake, you might remember him from mm-hmm. some other books. He has a 500,000 copy first printing. Um, so yeah, um, great short stories from Kelly Link, Get in Trouble. So yes, I mean, that's, that's really part of the attraction along with the education. And there's been a lot of conversation at BEA about readers coming to these events. Do readers ever show up at Winter Institute, or is it really just for people in the industry? Um, One of the things about Winter Institute, and one of the reasons publishers love it, is that it is only about the booksellers. It's about introducing booksellers to writers, finding out what, um, what booksellers are interested in, and uh, and just trying to improve what publishers do to make stronger stronger books in all kinds of ways. Um, I know that I spoke to uh, Nancy McCloskey at Tin House, who told me that she learned that all those belly bands that they thought were so cool on their books and that booksellers were loved, they were taking off. So they don't make them anymore. <laughs> oh so wow. It just goes all the way around in terms of looking at the list. Um, so it is it is um, very exciting. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff on creating a local uh, alliance. Uh, there's a, um, there are sessions on campaigning for diversity. Um, there are sessions on uh, on events management. Uh, there's a discussion of F. Scott Fitzgerald, who happened to have stayed in the hotel that Winter Institute will be at um, this year. So 
uh, Maureen Corrigan, who many people know from NPR, Stuart O'Neill, and mm-hmm. Eric Larson are going to be speaking about F. Scott Fitzgerald. So it, the education varies from the very specific how to run a book fair to um, something like that. Wow. Well, that that sounds like such a, a good time for, for booksellers to just go and network. I mean, often, I guess, you're you're stuck in your store. You don't get to get out and talk with other booksellers very often. And it's probably good to see them as community rather than competition. I don't think most booksellers view each other as competition. Um, I think they I think they've come to see that we're all in it together and stronger stores each stronger store makes makes everybody stronger. Um, I think that that competition sense used to be prevalent a few decades ago, but I think I think it's it's uh, it's worn away a lot. Um, so yes, it it is more of that networking experience. Not that networking doesn't take place at BEA, but. So much else takes place at BEA mm. that it's not as intimate as this setting, which is limited to 500 people, uh, 500 booksellers. So mm. um, some of that smallness makes for uh, what makes it such an exciting, um, it's not quite a week, half week. Wow. Well, I hope you have a great time. I, I take it you're going? Uh, I'm definitely going. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, there's so much to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it. Well, thank you so much, Judith. It's always great to have you on the show. And thank you, Rose. And thanks, Mark. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, this is Gay Talese. I'm the author of The Bridge, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 